This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. On this week's podcast, we welcome award-winning artist and designer Maya Lin, who first achieved fame at the age of 21 as the designer of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., and whose work today encompasses large-scale environmental installations, intimate studio artworks, architectural works, and memorials. Her latest design project, What is Missing?, raises awareness about the crisis surrounding biodiversity and habitat loss. In this conversation with NYPL's Paul Holdengraber, Lynn talks about space, memory, and the incredible resilience of nature. What a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. This is a memorial of a different nature. It is. Um, It's called What is Missing. I think about 25 years ago, I had an idea. Um, I work in series as an artist, usually threes, fives, sometimes seven. Sometimes three times seven. Three times seven, when I cheat. And um, I knew, I had at that point worked on a memorial for war, um, civil rights, women's rights, the women's table at Yale, and um, wanted to start on one for the environment, because ever since I was a kid, I cared deeply about the environment. And um, I got pulled in to do a very in-depth project along the Pacific Northwest by the Native American tribes along the Columbia River. And I put off what would be come, what is missing. I, I mention it. I end boundaries with this idea. It was called the Extinction Project. And I didn't really get started on it till um, I got a commission for the California Academy of Sciences to make an artwork. And as opposed to just making an artwork, I made them too. And the second one was the beginning of what is missing. Your interest, your interest in zoology, your interest yeah. in medicine, your interest in, interest science. in science. Yeah. Um, um, I would say ever since I was a kid, uh, grew up in the 60s, 70s, and I mean, it was a really engaging time, whether it was the Vietnam War, civil rights issues, women's rights issues, and for me, um, grew up in Ohio, Lake Erie catches on fire. You have really the formation of and the establishment of the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act by 1973. And it really had an impression on me as a child. And I actually went to college to study um, field zoology. Um, you know, and, and so I've always cared about the environment. But you stopped at that point because a... A professor of yours um, warned you. Well, I was given, you know, you enter college, went to Yale, um, and you were given an advisor. I was given this wonderful science advisor. Actually, he was an acoustician, Dr. Robert Apfel. And um, he said, you know, Maya, the, the animal behavior program at Yale is, is neurologically based, and it involves vivisection. And I didn't really know what that meant. But um, when I found out, I was sort of like, well, this might not be what I'm quite interested in. Being a bit of a nerd, I, I was sort of nervous, because there I was thinking, I, I'm going to go into this, and 
I remember it was freshman, like, entering day, and um, looked up at the ceiling of Woolsey Hall, and I thought, well, what about architecture? Because it sort of blends art and science and math, because I kind of like, I was a bit of a polyglot. And so I go running over to the architecture department, and the director said, go away. Come back at the end of your sophomore year, because we don't want anyone to come in specialized. Go out there and just follow whatever interests there are. So I took everything from the geology of the Long Island Sound to art classes, just um, and then applied and went into the major. But it, I, I think it's interesting that this passion of yours has never vanished. <laughs> it's there all the time. Always. Always. And, yeah, and I think um, I'll just remember as a kid, my parents they kind of wouldn't let us have pets. It wasn't that they were like against pets. I think my mom just thought, you know, the, the pet was not in their language. Like we had a cat once for a little while. I can't remember what happened to it. So I, I was really, I was like, I, I just don't want to know what happened to it. And um, we were in a house surrounded by the woods. This is going to sound really stupid. Um, and I would sit in the lawn and I would sit really still till like I could get like the rabbits to get kind of close or the birds would like come and they, my dad always said they, they kind of trained me so that they would come to the window when they wanted me to feed them or I'd open the door and leave a trail of peanuts into the house and chipmunks and squirrels would come in. So I've always loved animals despite the fact that my parents were a little bit horrified by, you know, what are you doing anyway? Yeah, so I've always loved the natural world. We're going to look at some images, and yeah. I'd like you to, to okay. comment on. We're going to look at a yeah. lot of images. I'm just preparing you for a voyage yes. through Mayelin's work. And let's begin there. So this is called the Listening Cone. It is the first installation of what is missing. Um, the idea of what is missing is what if you could make a memorial that could be in as many places as it was invited in. It could exist as temporary installations, permanent installations. It exists as a website, whatismissing.net. It will exist as a virtual and a physical book. And to me, it's free as long as you share it. So this was at Renzo Piano. He was designing the um, California Academy of Sciences. This is where I had an art commission. I built an outdoor wire landscape of the San Francisco Bay on their western terrace. And Renzo was like, well, you can use the exterior of the Eastern Terrace. He has this thing about his piazzas. Heaven forbid you would put an artwork in one of his piazzas. So, so I was out of doors, and I was very interested in using sound and video, but I'm out of doors. So in order to make a piece that would engage visually as well as with sounds, I had to create an enclosure, and so this listening cone, it's sort of based on the RCA Victor, kids sit inside the reclaimed redwood wood and listen, and the BBC, National Geographic, and Cornell Anthology Labs donated sound, film, and we started doing this research, and we've, right now, What is Missing has produced about 75 one to two minute educational videos about species, habitats, um, issues, and then the intro clip is what is played at the beginning. And, and what do they hear when they go in there? The very first thing they'll hear is an animal sound or a sound of a habitat, like the whole rainforest. 
And we're very visual. So the idea was twofold. If you can't see it and you hear it first, your, your brain kind of clicks on to a different way of a relationship. And you're also very curious. So I'm always trying to arrest the visual. And then the films always fade in, like the one you saw of the loon. And you begin to read it first before, again, you see it. So the last thing you see is the visual. And then the text as you go through it, it's never me. Another thing that I thought would be very important for me to do with what is missing is to act as a frame where we're quoting from all the NGOs, all the scientific groups, and what you begin to see is to see this group as a family and to see their gains and their losses. This shows um, Creative Time and the MTV Billboard. Creative Time got me the MTV Billboard in the month of April in 2010. And we again created four five-minute films that talked about different things that were missing. So again, it's not just the species, it's the habitats they need, but it's also not just an individual species, it's the entire group of sea turtles that are at risk. All the great apes are at risk. All the fish in the ocean are in a 90% collapse. This is um, our website. You can see a lot of dots, and um, you can click view in time, or you can see it geolocated. It's quite extraordinary to go on. Each one is a story of the natural world. There are timelines that show an in-depth, like a hundred point history of a city, a river, because what happens is you, people lived where there was great abundance. The first thing that goes is through sewage pollution then industrial, and then you see the arc of recovery where laws come into place. So again, that link between conservation integral to beginning to protect, and then like in New York Harbor, the seals come back, the first whale is sighted, But what you might not know is that, you know, in the 1680s, Adrian Vanderdonk accounted for lobsters that were six feet long. I don't have the lobsters here. I have have the elephants. The elephant? Yeah, I have to choose. (laughs) That's good. We'll go to that. But basically, so what do we do? We ask you. um, There's some note cards. Please take one, but then you owe me a memory. Um, Add a personal memory. If it's something you remember that your parents or your grandparents told, told you about diminished natural abundance or maybe something's come back, because the phenomena that scientists refer to as shifting baselines and Jared Diamond refers to as landscape amnesia is that we accept what we know. We don't remember that cod were larger than men in the 1890s. We won't know how abundant shellfish were so that they almost purified Chesapeake Bay every day and that someone noticed the churning of the water was from the shellfish cleaning it. And so basically, are we doing this? Am I doing it to depress you? No, I'm doing it to make your jaw drop open that nature, the natural world, is capable of that sort of abundance. And actually, nature is incredibly resilient and if we give it a chance, it comes back. So part of, the, um, part of it is to engage you and to get you to realize what's in your own backyard. What you can do. And then the second part is what you can do as individuals as well as what you can do um, with almost more macro thinking. So we're working on the last two years. It's called Green Print, 
which will take that light at night view and rearrange the lights with economics in mind, with urban planning in mind, with, with agricultural footprints in mind. So, so it's kind of a, I kind of went off the deep end and I've got two more years of, I would say, fairly nerdy research work. But you enjoy that. I do, but yeah, it's you... almost like, I would say 50% of my mind is um, on missing at any given time. It's a volunteer project for me. And I just feel if I could make one little bit of difference here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. And so this is what you were talking about earlier, how important the text is and yeah. how important the sources are and yeah. that it isn't your voice. It's never, it's never my voice, but I don't think it's ever been my voice. I well, always love... You mean I, any of your projects? Well, I, I think it's a funny one. I think I love presenting factual information. And then generally, what I'm after is your response to it. The thing that makes Missing different is there is a whole side of the website. So this is like, this is where I go normally. It's like elephant depletion. I mean, we basically have a list of all the animals that are in a 99%, 97 to 99% crash, whether it's bison or sea turtles or elephants or, or lions or tigers. I mean, it's incredible what's happened, and you might not realize this. Um, and, um, and I think, oops, I lost my train of thought. Where was I going? You, you, you're going. But this is sort of, so not only do we ask for personal memories, we have volunteers, historians, um, our researchers finding incredible accounts of natural abundance. Um, we've got the very first accounting we think of um, Plato and Critias, and he talks about the hills in Greece and how bare they are and how they were once forested. Um, sometimes, you know, we go So to, that could be the depressing part, it, how much is lost. It's depressing except for the fact that, and someone said, well, do we, do we have time to be depressed? And what will depression really do? I think it hopefully will wake us up and say, hey, I can do something about this. So whether it's choosing to you know, to consume organic, shade-grown, fair-trade coffee, which can support 150 species versus 20 to 30 in a plantation. There are so many things we can do in our consumer choices, as well as the kind of green print is really going to focus on the intersection between landscape reform, agricultural restoration, prevention of deforestation, um, coastal development, how those all together, the changes in land use, if we reform those practices, would be equivalent to almost 49% of all carbon emissions. So I came up with another film. Um, you can go to the website. It's called Unchopping a Tree. And it's basically we can save two birds with one tree. So I think we have to move very quickly to reduce climate change emissions. and a great way to do it is to restore and protect habitats. So facts like, you know, wetlands sequester three times as much carbon as a tropical forest, and with climate change happening so rapidly, it's our best line of defense against rising sea tides, and how many times are we gonna rebuild in the same location and rebuild and rebuild, when if we just are a little bit more logical and say, hey, if we created and return coastal wetlands in certain areas that are just at really the brunt of the hit and move back a little. 
we create a buffer zone for us, a massive biodiversity gain. And so that's sort of what we're beginning to play with. Um, we say things like, if you took the entire world's population today, seven billion of us, living at the density of Manhattan, not such a bad city to live in, how much space do seven billion people take up? Living at the density of Manhattan proper. And then we click the slide and it's the state of Colorado. So again, we love to share what the scientists are doing, what the experts are doing, but as an artist, maybe I could get you to think outside of the box or to rethink what the problem could be. You, you say, uh, in relating your experience in college, you, you once said, I loved logic, math, computer programming, I loved systems and logic approaches, and so I just figured out architecture is this perfect combination. Then it takes me seven years of architecture school to realize that I think like an artist. Right. What, what does it mean to think like an artist? Well, I think, I think whenever you get up, and the whole architectural training, you actually get up in front of your class, in front of critics, and you basically have to tell people why you do what you do. All the time. All the time. And in art, I think it's the exact opposite. And it doesn't mean that one's more logical than the other. We're making choices in everything we do, if we're sculpting or painting, but we're not going to attempt, and you would never dream to attempt, to delineate and explain why you're making that mark over that mark. So I think the two sides of me, and for some weird reason, I think I ended up with both, both. the left side and right side of the brain. They're, they're a little bit... For better and for worse. For better and, and for, for worse, worse, and for richer and poorer, um, they kind of are diametrically opposed at times. Yeah. And I'm, I'm living in fear, and I think the memorials are that in-between ground, because I'm really trying to solve problems, and yet at the same time, you have to let the poetry come forward. You know, uh, Pascal once said that there are two kinds of mind, l'esprit de finesse and l'esprit de géométrie. The, the kind of finesse and ge geometry, right. and in some sense, these two cultures came together in you, and you—they're they're not really fighting. They're not fighting. They're not fighting, but they're but, interested in the threshold. But there's like this. a tension, or yeah. uh, no? I don't. I actually don't think there's any tension. It's like, I don't know. You could say I was always interested in the boundary area between the two states, but I actually love architecture for its sort of programmatic, functional aspects. And I love art because it's the exact opposite and You've spoken about them as prose and poetry. Yeah, and I, and I think the great fear, and I think what I have to balance is um, twofold. One, we've tended to live in a very, um, ever since the industrial era, we like to compartmentalize. So I was labeled as an architect, and it took me years to figure out that um, I was, they would call me much more intuitive, which I think implies like there isn't a reason to what you're doing. I think there's just as much reason, but we're not going to speak about it. We're not going to be able to define well, it, we, delineate we, it. We were label, uh, you know, the, the labeling also happens because other people label us. It's, right. it's a mixture. Yes. You know, Napoleon once said of one of his generals, he knew everything but nothing else. And sometimes that's very, it's sometimes very dangerous, right? Yes. We're, we're put in this small world. That was one kind of memorial we saw in right. Missing Out. Now yes. I'd like to, to go through the landscape of many of your okay. memorials. Yes. 
um, Civil Rights Memorial, uh, Montgomery, Alabama, built, um, commissioned by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And um, they called me up. I had graduated from grad school. And I could not believe when they asked me that there wasn't a memorial to the civil rights era. But at the same time, I was very reluctant to take it on because I was hyper aware of where I was in my life and that if I took this on, the labeling would be just twofold. But at the same time, probably for the same reason I designed the Vietnam Memorial, I, there's a side of me that has been very drawn to history and learning. And maybe it's because both my parents were educators and the fact that I didn't realize until I started reading about the civil rights era. And this was like, we were living through it and I wasn't understanding it as a kid and I didn't realize that someone was murdered for using the wrong colored bathroom. I didn't know this movement. I remember um, in the 80s, I think Eyes on the Prize come out and people understand it, but like if you were growing up and being taught history in the 70s, it was almost too soon. So part of me is realizing at that point that if we can't remember it, how, how can we even learn from But the reluctance was also that you would be speaking in somebody else's name? No, not at all. Um, it was more that I just didn't want to, I mean, you know, my whole life it's, she's the kid that designed the, the memorial, so doing another one is going to just substantiate that. Um, but at the same time, I, I just felt, especially I start researching, it takes me one or two years to, to research, and I didn't presume to know what the historians knew. So they assembled, the Southern Poverty Law Center assembled everyone from Julian Bond to historians, I can't remember, there were like eight. And my only, my seeking for this was I knew very early on this, this couldn't be just about the martyrs, the people killed. It had to teach a brief history. So what you see at the beginning, and it's a, it's a sundial effect. It's a clock in a way. And there's a gap. We have it there it right is. It's there. perfect. There's a gap because with the Vietnam, it's a book. And the timeline meets. Beginning and end of the war meet. With civil rights, there's a gap signifying the time before and the time after. That what we captured here was from 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, to 68, Martin Luther King's assassination. As kind of the core history of what they would determine was the civil rights era. At which point, what you got is legislation, you have riots, you have someone's death. Someone's death is sometimes caused because of legislation or riot, but you begin to see as you walk around the, the timeline that this was a people's movement. That there are, I think, I can't remember how many names, but someone's death triggered either better legislation or the attempt at better legislation led to a riot, led to someone's murder. And as you walk it by intertwining individual lives lost with special you know, political events, you begin to see how they're connected. And the worst of it was, and I'll, I'll never forget, we had to sit around the table 
with the word murdered, lynched, how many times you could say killed, how do you do it factually? How do you make it so you don't end up sensationalizing it? Because again, I'm a firm believer that if I step off my bounds and I become emotional, and if the context becomes too emotional, then I'm not trusting the viewer to react and respond to it. These words, though, when you read them for the first time, arrested you. Yeah, I f was flying down to, to Montgomery on the first trip, reading Eyes on the Prize and reading something I can't remember. And before I landed, I came across Martin Luther King quoting from the Book of Amos, we are not satisfied, we shall not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters. And I just, this is that intuition, like you research something, you put it all aside, and something just hits you. And I knew the piece would be about water. Before I even landed, and I'll never forget, it was the proverbial, you sketch it out on a napkin, you give it to Morris Dees and Richard Cohen, who I just saw, and you just know the piece would be about that quote. I don't know why. But there's, there's a, a recognition that happens. Something strikes you and you don't know why. And I don't want to know why. I, I can understand <laughs> that. You I know, don't want to know But it's also what's, what's interesting in, in your process for me is that you immerse yourself in a lot of things that you know little about at first. And there's such a pleasure in not knowing. Right. Um, there's a historian who I much admire named Carlo Ginsberg who said that when he starts his research, he starts from the point of view of the euphoria of ignorance. Yes, absolutely. And that is something that and I think we share. But I, right. I mean, it's certainly something that I... I adore about what I do, which is I speak to people all the time who are so different, and each time I have to immerse myself in, in their right. work, as I did with you. And here you are immersing yourself in this work, and then you come upon that quotation. And I knew it. And you know, and you know what the yeah. work will look like. The words, in a way, made the work realized in that fashion. Yeah, and, and also, there is a site, and that's Julian Bond and um, Rosa Parks, so it was an incredible, moving dedication. And, mm. and I, 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 I can't... It, it was... Yeah. It, it was... The, the plaza was packed. But there were also um, state troopers on the rooftops because they were sort of afraid of perhaps snipers. I mean, it was a little bit interesting. I mean you feel like you've participated in parts of history that you, you almost can't um, describe in a way. And then someone fainted, but the whole crowd just hushed because they thought maybe something had happened. Um, it was just the heat of the day. But the funny thing with me is once I'm done with the project, and this is the terrible thing, I kind of have to move on. And right now, I am so... My head is like, my brain is ready to explode with facts about sustainability and economics, not that I could spout out too much now, but just, it's odd. I compartmentalize and then I have to move on. And I've always been that way. But you, you, you approach things from, you were mentioning early on that you were a nerd as you were growing up. Yeah. So you, you approach things wanting to, really wanting to understand what it is you're working on. Yeah. And 
it reminds me of this idea that you want to get to immediacy after reflection. Right, but it's also, you, I write a lot, I research a lot. I mean, writing, I'll just leave jots down. Like, there have been clues throughout in the book, like the women's table, I think I just wrote a spiral of numbers to start a beginning. Um, and then I basically have to put it all away. And then I usually go to the site. But you begin with the writing. Sometimes I begin with the writing. I think for the sculptures, I think the sculptures are the ones that I often don't. But the whole body of work is about sort of studying terrain, topography. Um, I'll begin with ideas of what I might want to try to say. And then it all goes away. And I wake up one day, and usually it's after I've seen the site. With Yale, the women's table was really funny because... um, they would call every like three months going, anything? <laughs> no, go away. Um, and then one morning I woke up and I made this little model. And it slightly reminded me of a Modigliani face offset on a, on a base. I mean, I knew the timeline would be there because again, I'm, I've been obsessed with time in all my works um, or in the memorials. But I didn't know the form, and that one took a long time. So for these works, I don't work on deadline because I don't believe, well, what if I had a deadline and then I had to find a form before it found me? I know that sounds a little strange. Not really. But I kind of believe that with all that research, at some point, Sediment. I put it Something all away. happen. And something happens at night, you know, when you sleep or whatever, you dream or whatever, and it'll pop up. But heaven forbid, because of a deadline, I had to force something out too soon. So I kind of, I need that percolation time for, for the, the memorials. And I think, you know, missing, I'm nowhere near, even though the website is up, it will keep on changing, it will keep on evolving. I write about it at the end of the book, it's a guerrilla artwork. Um, in many shapes and forms, and um, but at the same time, have I done what I do normally? No, because I'm still so much in the research mode, and I've got two more years, and then what will probably happen is Why I'll... Why two more years? Because s- I think that's how long it's going to take me to, to do enough on green. So you have an internal deadline. I've had internal deadlines, and I've been meeting the deadlines, but the stripping down, because at some point I'm going to want it to end up very pure and more into pure poetry, but not yet. I'm not ready for that, because that's sort of the final end of all the research. And I tend to write a lot of booklets to understand what a project is. So with Missing, they'll end up being like all these little iterative booklets that help me see what I'm doing or trying to do. But it's still fairly obscure. I kind of apologize for it at the end of, end of um, topologies. <laughs> It's a work in progress, guerrilla artwork. It's kind of, I'm building it in full view and I keep morphing it every, every Earth Day. I tend to surface on Earth Day because otherwise, um, and then I hide back into my hall. Um, so this is my month yeah. of getting the word out about what we've been doing with Missing. And, um, and, and then I'll, I'll keep on working on it. But, we'll get back yeah. to Missing. I'd like to take you yeah. to a different project. Yeah. There you, you felt quite different than... Yeah. Um, was... I, you know, in architecture, and again, because I do art and the large-scale environmental artworks and the shows, 
I'm very careful when and what I take on in architecture. And it's very humble at times. And for MOCA, Museum of Chinese in America, which is downtown, um, I have been drawn to help out not-for-profit organizations that I like or I believe in. And so with MOCA, um, my mother would be so proud if she were alive, she sort of saw it. I probably took 35 years or 40 years of kind of not being exactly embracing of my Asian identity culture and I just decided again how important it is. And again, it might be because as I've grown up, I've realized this kind of dual identity has probably played into my feeling of love of the opposites. So Museum of Chinese in America, it's a 12,000-square-foot it's a um, museum downtown, renovation of an old machinery work, um, sh workshop that is, um, I'm on the board, um, helped them out ever since, keep helping them, and we did it on a shoestring. And I'm really, I love you, doing architecture when, um, for, for causes, for groups that might not have a lot of money, but to me it doesn't mean you can't, you can't do something for them. You, you brought up your mother. Yeah. And that she would be proud. You, you, I found this magnificent quotation in, a, in an interview that you did yeah. with Bill Moyers many, many years ago, where you say, I think my mother was born in Shanghai. Oh, I think, <laughs> and she was. She was. <laughs> you've, you've become more certain about that. She would have been proud of this. Of of me kind of connecting to and getting my closer to them cultural identity because I think, and again, and it, it, I think it's a little bit of a phenomena with immigrant parents. Um, both my mom and my dad came from China. They fled as communism comes in. They met in the States, and they never talked about what it was like growing up. They never talked about it. We never brought it up. They would say, well, you never were interested. And we would say, how could we be interested when in you didn't something you didn't bring it? up? And, and, and so, so it's one so, of these catch-22s. So, catch so it's <laughs> the, the return of the repressed, you got incredibly interested in it. Yeah, we got it. really interested in it. And so this is just the interior. And there's a hidden courtyard, and we were able to um, walk you around, and again, here comes the timeline. The inner courtyard, which, oh my God, the first time I visited the site, it was buried, you couldn't even see. It's a skylit corridor, and the whole narrative history, the arc of Chinese Americans coming to this country, which actually starts very early on, walks that timeline. And the film portraits you see um, that was done with, um, local projects and management and matter, the design firm. Literally, Chinese immigrants have come out in waves. So in a way, the reflection of what was going on in China as to why they immigrated in that part of China coming out was very different. Sort of like someone coming from England or someone coming from Spain, but it's all considered China. But what people don't know is the dialects were different, why they came out, the entire cultures. So as you walk it, you see this history revealing Absolutely. itself. But as you go down to the classrooms and the offices down below, you actually see the changing face of Chinese immigration through the different eras as a family. So I never thought I could play as much with time and 
in a weird way, some subtle symbolism in the architecture. So this was sort of a, a sweet project to do. Maya, let me take you on a, on a journey which yeah. may be novel for you. Okay. But it's a memorial that is incredibly important to me, um, given my family history. Um, it's a memorial that an Israeli artist, Danny Caravan, did for Walter Benjamin. And it's in Porbou, at the, right at the border between France and Spain. He never made it, and there's great discussion whether he committed suicide or not. But this, do you know this memorial? I do know it. It's incredible. Let me, let me show it yeah. to you. That's beautiful. Yeah, I like that reaction. It's <laughs> it, it is incredible to be there. Yeah. Um, he nearly escaped, and so you you have right. you have that the sea there and the beyond, which was yeah. not reached. Yeah, it's stunning. It reminds me a little bit, and very, very different, but there are aspects of this to um, Pingasson's memorial to the deported at the tip of the Ile de la Cité yeah. in Paris. Which is but incredible. of course, um, which was very moving and something I had studied, um, where basically you have the names past a certain point and you can look into this one area with, God, I can't recall the quote there, but it's a similar thing. But all of these, in a way, are about passages that you can get to a certain point, and then you see beyond, but we're not allowed to attain it. Well, so to me, it's a it's little a like Hades, it's Eurydice, it's Orpheus descending, having to turn around and come back, that we're not allowed. So these are all, they're very allegorical journeys in a lot of ways. And I, I, you know, I think the Vietnam is based the same way. It's just, I mean, there isn't a view to ocean, but there's the reflection. So you see yourself in, through a mirror darkly, and you see yourself reflected in the names. With this one, it's all about the expanse. But again, we're not allowed that, that change there. Can I tell you what yeah, the quotation please. says? It's from on the concept of history that Benjamin wrote a few months before dying. It is more difficult to honor the memory of the anonymous than it is to honor the memory of the famous. The historical construction is dedicated to the memory of the anonymous. Can you say that again? Yeah. Let's start. Sorry. It is more difficult to honor the memory of the anonymous than it is to honor the memory of the famous. The historical construction is dedicated to the memory of the anonymous. Right. No, it's beautiful. It's, to me, though, in a very funny way, the most moving memorials, whether it's the memorials to the missing in World War I, wow, that you brought up, um, or what you just read, it's of all about absence, and it's about there is an impossibility that you, you absolutely can't attain. So this is, this memorial, which is Lechen's Memorial to the Missing in Thiepval, France, is very directly connected to my design 
for the Vietnam Memorial. Not so much formally, but, um, um, but twofold. On this, if you go back one image, um, written in, on the white stone are the names of, yeah. I think, over 100,000 soldiers killed in one battle. Over, I think it was a three-day period, yeah. the Battle of the Somme, and they're all missing. Why are they missing? Because there were no dog tags. So I had, you, you know, long, everyone knows the story. I, I designed the memorial, Vietnam Memorial, as a class project. And the class project, as a senior at Yale, you have, um, you have an option. You could set up your own class. So seven of us said, we're interested in funerary architecture. The design we did right before we decided, oh, let's, let's design the Vietnam Memorial. There's a competition. That's a great way to end the school. The assignment was to design a memorial to World War III. And so I had started studying all about memorials. So you get back into the thought about the famous versus the missing or the individual. Up until, I would say, the World War I memorials in Europe, Memorials were always about the victor and, frankly, always about the leader. The foot soldier didn't matter because up until modern times, individual lives, soldiers, weren't really accounted for. Got the man on the horse. We won. You get to, except for like the Civil War in the U.S., where brothers from you know, both sides were going to be listed in the town memorials. The memorials to World War I, um, a, a war commission was set up, the lives lost, I think it was like one out of three or, or one out of four men in Europe. And because there were no IDs, so many were missing. And you see, and I studied, there were books put out. We found a couple of the early volumes. These were so powerful, and I didn't quite understand why. But I, I just, you know, aside from the fact that they listed all the names, but these were not victorious. These were, like, Vincent Scully described this as almost like a gaping scream. There was a bombed-out church in the town, and this memorial was, in a way, formally very much connected to that. But what happened was I had then designed, last project, after finding this in, as I'm thinking about, Oh, designed for a World War III memorial. Um, I had designed the memorial, and class was about to end, or class had ended, and Scully, if you go back one, in the spring semester, I had designed it in the fall of 80, I had a senior seminar with Vincent Scully, and he starts talking about how you go up to this memorial from the opposite side. You have to cut through a simple lawn of grass. So you're in a way violating that space. You get up, you're inside this gaping screen. You're looking out on a hundred crosses and a hundred tombstones of the British and the French. You're not allowed to go down into that space that you have to now turn around and go back. And as he's describing this journey to an awareness of loss and that, again, there you have it, you can't attain it, 
I'm starting to write furiously. And what I write, I end up writing on the boards that I, that I then decide to submit because um, I just wanted to kind of, I don't know, make a statement. But that's sort of why this piece has been so important to me. Vince was always a little curious because formally they couldn't be more different. Um, but then I finally wrote about it anyway. You, you, you say about the memorial, it's tapping into some very important, I would say, ancient needs. Yes. Um, and that very... I, I think, again, as, as you're studying how we mourn, um, I was very acutely aware how America's very young and we tended to be very afraid of aging, of dying, that earlier cultures have always not just embraced death, but that the dying is so much a part of a ceremony of life that there's much more of an acceptance of it and a, a more of admitting it in as part of life, and that we're a very young culture, and we almost hit away the age, you the elderly. You think it's because of that? Yeah, I think it's youth. I think we're just a very young country. Um, still are. Maybe we're going through our kind we're of We're a very young country, and we have such strange expressions. You know, when you want to say in the American English language that something is irrelevant, you say that's history. Right. We have no history. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's rather odd. No, I mean, I think it's like, think of it like probably right now we're in our awkward adolescence, um, you know, as a country. Uh, no, we were very afraid. And, you know, so I designed this thing and, and, and I, the names began and ended the, um, the apex, sort of the closed book. So it is that closed time frame. But again, what you have is not so much an object inserted to the earth, but I've always seen this, like you cut the earth, you polish its edges, it's a geode. But what I've really done is by going down 10 feet at the apex, you create this quieting sensation. So as you go lower and lower, the sounds of the city, because Constitution Avenue is right there, it's really noisy actually, that drips, drops away, and you don't have a sense as much that you're going you're descending, but the names are rising up. So psychologically, you're kind of walking into another world that you can see. It's like that image of our world, again, through a glass darkly. Um, and then you have to turn around and walk into the light. You have to turn around and walk back. So it is that journey. And turn around with whatever it is you, right. you are feeling. And I think... Obviously, for me, the fact that um, I made it a chronological listing of names, again, is all about the reality of a time. And again, trying to capture the factual nature of the situation. So any veteran who spent time in the war would come back and within one or two pages of the As book, were, yeah. find their time, and of course find their colleagues. So even though their names aren't there, they're, they're back in their time. And, it's, and I had to fight really hard because first they really did not want the names chronological. 
They wanted them alphabetical because they thought, how are people going to find a name? They're going to have to stay, take time to look. And I said, look, they will want to take that time because that becomes the ritual of understanding and of remembering. Um, and then just... I keep always remembering also that the word remembering is really remembering, putting the members back together. Absolutely. You know, and, and, I, and I also think it's like a name brings back everything you know about the person. So is it really that abstract? The timeline makes it actually very real in a funny and taking way. Taking the time is important. Yeah, and, and so. then it's also the scale is hugely important. The lettering is like less than a half an inch high. So what, what you've got is a book put out in full view, but it's still a book, and we all have to read books one-on-one. Well, on yeah. one. you, you, you say, I like to think of my work as creating a private conversation with each person, no matter how public each work is, and no matter how many people are present, right. which to, to my mind is very consonant with this idea of book, because yeah. in, in some sense, we're never more alone than we're, when we're with a book and never right. more accompanied. And it's, it's very personal, and yet, no matter how public, so I don't actually think of any of my works in terms of how many people or how public a space is. I'm probably like that, and that all I'm after is what one person is going to do when they touch or experience one of my pieces. And touching it is important. Touching is you know, you can't see it without touching it, in my opinion. <laughs> no, Sorry. I, I, ju I just wanted people to hear that. <laughs> no, That's why it's I like, paused. Like everything I do, I try to I say, oh, I just have to touch that. I just have to see it. Which is interesting because museums, as it were, are all about not touching. I know. It's like, no, you got to touch the pieces. For me, at least, for sculpture, it's like you want everyone to, like, connect to it. That was the first... Yeah, that's... You know, it's pastel drawing. I think one of the jurors said, he must really know what he's doing to dare to do something that naive. Um, had they any idea? I was young. <laughs> 21. I was, I, was, I was still in college when it came out. So, yeah, it was sort of interesting. Anyway, long time you, ago. <laughs> some years back. Do you, do you ever wonder what would have happened if this hadn't happened to you? If, if mm -hmm. you Yeah? Sure. Yeah, of course. We all do. It's like, you know, every time you have a moment in life and you take a different turn. I mean, I think it probably, knowing that it happened, I did everything I could to pretend it hadn't by going right back into grad school. And I think, I'll never forget, I got out of grad school, popped to the next slide, and see what's next. Oh, no, after that. Mm. No, other mm. way. Other way, guys. No? Sure. Go on. I'm just curious. Oh, no, no you, can't go to no, that. No, no, I want to get past the memoirs. Um, yeah. Um, where was I? You were asking me to go back and forth. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Um, I want to get past but, this yeah, piece. Yeah. Um, okay, well, we, we... But I do want... This is interesting. Oh. So interesting to me. Is this where I think it is? Yes, I think it is where I you think, think it is. I think it is where I think it is. Um, um, I'll show you. Is this in Beijing? Yes. Okay. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, the story there. Yeah. The family story. There's a family. Um, you, you must tell it. Um, it's just too extraordinary. And also the fact that in your family, 
you're carrying around this urgency for memorials in the most central location one could possibly imagine. So this is the Forbidden City, or no, it's not. It's the big Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen Square. And my aunt, the eldest daughter of my grandfather, my father's half-sister, um, it was a certain time in China, and um, my father was the first-born son, eldest son of the third wife. Lin Weiyin is This is the, why I wanted you to yes. tell the story. <laughs> my aunt, Lin Weiyin, uh, very well-known, very beloved in China, um, almost like they have soap operas about her and TVs and movie shows about her, is the... Um, daughter of the second wife, and there was a first wife who um, had no children. So mm, everybody loved Lin Weiyin. I had an architecture teacher at Yale, King Louie Wu, who came up to me and said, I know your aunt. I mean, and it, he still had a crush on her. And, and men just adored her. And she, was, she married Lang Cheng. But she had a certain magnetism to the point where they both came out to study architecture in the States. So they get to UPenn, and she's told, well, we don't accept women. And within a year, she's teaching at the school. She just had <laughs> something with her. And I just, it, it, she was modern. She was smart. She, she and her husband ended up cataloging a lot of the ancient architectural styles of China. They went all around documenting it. That manuscript was lost for many years. Their friends, Wilma and John Fairbanks, found it and published it. It's called A Pictorial History of Chinese Architecture. And she and her husband train in the States. They bring modernism back to China. They're, they're firm nationalists. They believe they were going to go back and help out China and they pretty much helped engineer Tiananmen Square. And she created this monument in, in Tiananmen Square. I think she also had a huge say in the Chinese flag um, from certain reports. I didn't know about this history. My father, though, adored his sister, adored her, and so desperately wanted a girl. So my brother's born, brother's older than me, and he, um, you know, he wanted a girl. So it's very not the Chinese, like the assumed, the father wants the son. It's like, he just wanted a girl because he so adored Lin Weiyin. And um, then I, you know, flash forward, we're in DC, it's some function, he's come in, and my dad is talking on and on with the, then ambassador from China. And at the end, I'm going, what were you guys talking about? And only then does my dad begin to reveal the family history. I think my grandfather helped draft the first constitution in China, that I had this aunt, and she was actually well-known too. And it was kind of this interesting piece that was not in my life. There was but, a piece missing. But there was a whole undercurrent where my father was just so, in a way, 
it's almost like he gave me a sort of strength because I almost got this favoritism. Sorry, Tom, my brother. Um, <laughs> because he was just so adoring of her. And, and it was just, it, it was sort of in a very empowering But again, thing. The, the history was kept from you. It as, was as, absolutely as you said kept. Earlier. Except for yeah. the fact, that, the, the fact that he almost empowered the daughter to have this sort of favorite son status. It was a funny thing to be in. What I thought was really funny is, without knowing it, we, we're connected. In yeah. a, in a, um, and I remember um, a history professor at Yale, Jonathan Spence, was like telling me and showing me pictures a of great her. Chinese scholar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful man. Yeah. And, um, and um, it's, it's just kind of a funny irony. You know, so there's a Chinese part and then there's discovering also Japanese yes. sensibility. Yeah. And this project in some ways you know, is connected to that. I think I never could figure out how much I responded much more in a way to Japanese architecture, to its simplicity, until my mother and I were in China. This is one of my first art installations. So this is 1993. It's for the Wexner Center for the Arts. Um, I was invited to install a permanent work, the first permanent work, I think, at the Wexner Center. And the Wexner Center was designed by Peter Eisenman, and he combined two grids. Go back one slide. And in doing so, as you walked into the front entrance and one level down in the cafe, you were met with a concrete moat, empty, nine feet wide, kind of an impossible residual space, filling up with cigarette butts, whatever, the wind would blow in. And I had been working in my studio with broken glass, but you could never put it out in a public space because it's broken glass. It is tempered glass, but it's technically still not something you could put out where kids could play with it. And I took one look at the space and I said, I know exactly what I want to do. Um, 43 tons of broken car glass and white patio glass, because broken car glass was green. It was tinted green. And then the patio glass, again recycled, was white. And I had the cullet, it was called cullet, the recycled cullet guys, pour it into these massive dump trucks equally on both sides so that when it would pour out in these buckets with the crane bucket, they'd blend and i get the color of water which is what I really wanted to do. Um, I gave myself seven days working with the team to make the piece with barely a sketch because as I, once I got out of grad school, I began to realize um, how much I was splitting my time between my architecture and my art. And it's probably always been this way. Full disclaimer, my dad was dean of fine arts. I know, and, and uh, we, we, you know, uh, more of a disclaimer is that your father also was a ceramicist. ceramicist. And, and he was, the, the school of art was my playground. So I was like casting bronzes um, by the time I was in high school. And I just, I don't think I ever was not making something. But my mom was a little bit of an academic snob and heaven forbid I would go into something my dad was doing because he only got a master's degree and you should get a doctorate. So there was this really academic side. And then there was my dad who was like, you know, smoking cigarettes, being cool, being the ceramicist. And the two sides are like oil and, and water the, at times. I don't remember in, in, in what passage you talk so movingly about your father's hands. Oh, yeah. Um, it was in Boundaries. And 
um, he, he was an incredible ceramicist. And he could pull apart the length of his arm, beautiful, slender, um, always ceramic glazeware, stone pottery glazewares. And I grew up with him having that ability, and at a certain point, he gave it up. And he started, first he became director of the School of Art, then he became dean of the School of Art. And I couldn't figure out how a potter was so good at balancing the budget. And, um, and he was really tough. Like, I think they were all so happy when he retired because he always got the most money for the School of the Art at Ohio University. And what, again, he never offered, and they would say, we never asked. Um, he fled China mid-career. And when he was a teenager, high schooler, um, he really wanted to go into ceramics. His parents had an incredible ceramics collection um, that when the Japanese invaded, um, a lot of it was taken at that point. And um, he wasn't allowed to. So he goes into academic administration. He becomes like secretary of Fukien University. He comes out. He's probably almost 40. Goes to University of Washington. Starts studying ceramics. But he was trained as an academic administrator. So he gets to OU hired as a ceramicist, and little by little moves back into academic administration, partly because he liked it, partly because he wanted to make more money so he could put my brother and I through college. And by the time he returned to ceramics after he had retired, he had developed a little bit of arthritis, and my dad was a perfectionist. And um, he just made all these pots and he never glazed them because he just they weren't good enough for him. And so we still have them. And one day, my brother and I always talk about who could we get to work with us to maybe glaze them, or maybe it's best to just leave them what do you think? unglazed. I don't know. It's probably why they just sit in storage waiting for something. I don't know what. But he was an incredibly skilled ceramicist. And his hands his were, hands, I would say. when he passed away, I was not there, and I rushed out, and I got to the um, funeral home, and I just saw him lying in state, and I just looked at his hands. And this was a tough, he could be very formidable, like the, 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 the deans, he was a tough dean. And, um, and I always thought of my dad as being very kind of, he, he would yell, I mean, he would yell at professors, he would yell at the president to get more money. It's like, he was a tough guy. And I'm looking at his hands, and his hands are incredibly delicate. And they're incredibly elegant, and they're incredibly long. And I just looked, and I, I just realized, I, I, he gave me his hands. And you just see this guy as being like this gruff, Kind of you had grumpy never, dad. You, you feel you hadn't. I had never that. looked at his hands. It's like, oh my god, they're like so elegant. What a know? moment to discover them. I know it was a very strange moment because I'm sort of like, um, you know, yeah. tragic. I'm really torn up, but at the same time, it's like you're you're making a connection, and I think we just don't know. You can live with your. You don't know who your parents are because we're just when we're kids, we're just not looking at life that way. And maybe when you have kids and you 
reflect back. But um, yeah, that, that was a kind of an amazing magical moment. to look through a, um, a, yeah. a number of things quite quickly in the interest of just some time. Um, so this was part of, the first thing was the Wexner Center, and then I've done maybe five, six um, one-woman shows, and this was part of a show called Systematic Landscapes, where I took a mountain range that I knew, that I hike every summer, called Blue Lakes, and I pulled it apart. And this, in a way, is directly inspired by some of John McPhee's writings where he talks about going through, I don't know if it was the Cumberland Gap, I can't remember if it was in Basin and Range, where you're driving through these cuts and the way the sedimentation has been uplifted. So all of a sudden, as opposed to seeing the stratified layers of the earth lying flat, they've now risen up and you're driving through and the stratified layers are now like almost perpendicular to your ground plane. So if you go back one and see the detail, this is out of a formaldehyde-free particle board, and I took the terrain maps, I created this topography, and I deliberately stacked and had the plywood, the metite glued um, vertically that way, and I left just enough space, about 30 inches, so you can kind of fit through the maze, um, and each, each piece is like, 36 by 36, so the massing is larger than the space between, and you kind of get wedged through it as you go through and, it. And when you mention someone like, like John McPhee, yeah. those writings inspire the work. Yeah, and, and so I had asked um, in Topologies, um, because I, I couldn't resist, Boundaries, which was the first book, I wrote, because I really felt writing was almost like sketching for me. Um, this is the Caspian Sea, which is, again, we're very visual. A lot of my artwork focuses on natural phenomena, but again, maybe getting you to think about something you're not thinking of. And we tend to think of the surface of the water, we're really thinking of what's below. So this began to play with pulling the depth of bodies of water, and it's actually part of a series called Bodies of Water. This is um, a piece I just completed. It's still up at the Renwick. Um, their inaugural reopening, um, our first, the Renwick is our first museum, and if you go back one, um, it's the Chesapeake Bay, it's called Folding the Chesapeake, but the Renwick is a very historic building, and I took one look, there are nine artists in this group show, it's, the show is called Wonder, and, um, and I just took a drawing of the Chesapeake that I drew, I folded up the edges of the paper, and I said, well, what if I just ignored the architecture of the room and just let the piece flow up from the floor to the walls, up to the ceiling? Um, you can pop to one more. And so, I don't know if there's a third one that details no, now go back. And it is about, I love in my art to kind of look at waterways terrain. So in a funny way, sometimes I'm a bit of a cartographer. Um, I go to the Strand, I buy used atlases, and um, it's a little like automatic drawing, but how does this, a sculptor this also draw? This made me, made me think of what you saw in yes, the special collection. which was Olaf Erlison. So I would say about 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I started buying up used atlases. And what I love is you follow, I follow with an X-Acto blade. Um, um, landscape terrains, and up until you get to, to the United States and ways in which we could measure 
by hubris just measure a square. Um, cities, states, territories followed more natural boundaries. So the idea is once I start drawing in, you're kind of following both natural borders and political borders, and then you, I'm just making a landscape within, hidden away in atlases. Um, again, and then this is a pin, these are pin rivers of waterways. This is at the US consulate in Beijing, and if you go back one, it is the Yangtze River. So I like looking and grounding people in what is literally right under their feet. I also love focusing on rivers because we tend to, again, we're incredibly territorial. We, we see what we know, and we know along a river where we live. Maybe um, if someone's polluting upstream, we'll think about what's up there. Well, it comes back to what you we said at the beginning. Yeah. yeah, we don't tend to worry about what's downstream from us. So a lot of these rivers and waterways are beginning to get you to see these rivers as unified holes. And this one I love. Um, again, underwater terrain. This one was called waterline. Only the top two feet was above ocean level. It's the island of Bouvet, and it forms this complex terrain. And I just, um, again, I think 85% of the world is covered by water. Our most complex mountains are underwater. The tallest mountain in the world isn't Everest, it's Hawaii. And so oftentimes in my art, I'm trying to, partly I just want to look at it, because I'm just... Pay attention. And then partly I want to tweak people, because again, if, we can, if I can suspend disbelief, if I can get you to look at something for the first time, again, we're very... There's a chance. Interesting, because when we're kids, we look at something and we really look at it. We're immersed. We're, we've never seen it before. So we spend a lot of time fascinated by really simple things. And as we grow up and as we know more, we actually stop looking because we already have this background of knowledge. That's why I was mentioning immediacy yeah. after reflection. It's immediacy, yeah. it's empathy, it's that pure moment of experience, and it's very non-referential, especially in the art. But even within the history works, the memory works, um, I'm just trying to get you to see a pure fact in front of you rather than referencing it to something outside that zone. And I think a lot of the minimalist artists, um, I think it was Robert Morris wrote this great essay called The Present Tense of Space. Um, Irwin talks about it, in, or Weschler talks about it, Lawrence Weschler, in Seen forgetting, is Forgetting the Name of This Thing One Sees. If you can arrest any sense of reference, and you can pull someone into that immediate pure experience, and I'm, I'm drawn to that. Well, it's, it's a nostalgia for it also. I don't know. What, what well, do you, you know, mean? because you were talking about childhood, um, a, a desire, you know, the, you, right. you were mentioning Morris, there's a line in, in Simone Weil I've always loved where she says that attention is a form of prayer. Right, and it is. It's you, a you, you, type of you can get lost in the moment. 
Yeah. Right? You're getting and lost you, in you the hope life. for it. Yes, always. And I think partly I want to I want to get lost in that moment. I'm a little hyper. I'm a little way hyper. So my work is a lot calmer than I would ever be. It's really sad. You're not that hyper tonight, you're right. I'm so tired because it's 1.30 or 2 in the I morning. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to show yes. a, a building and we'll, we'll yeah. go. Th- yeah, this is, um, I just completed it. Um, you get a sneak peek of what's inside, um, but basically no one else will for a while. It's Novartis's research labs in Cambridge that we, I built. Uh, It's the only architecture project I took on from 2009 till last year. I'm now working on Smith's Library in Northampton. If you go back one, so, and go back another, no, go, okay, so this is a good slide. So the start of it, there's a lower section because everything along Mass Ave is four stories. And then there's a taller tower, which is all the research labs. And from the beginning, I based the entire patterning which is that stone, it's a floating stone sunscreen wall. Um, The stone is Chelmsford, it's literally quarried 15 minutes away from downtown Mass. And its patterning is based on a microscopic view of bone. And if you go back one, what I was trying to express was in medicine, scientists are always learning from nature, taking from nature, and then systematizing nature. So the pattern of the glass tower is almost a patterning. It's got seven different levels of fritted glass to begin to get that play of depth. It's all in one plane. And again, it's this kind of symbolic ideal that what we learn from in nature Medicine does exactly that. It then tries to make compounds, tries to make scientific sense of it, and then the heart and spirit of the building is you've got the whole lower, what I call the boomerang section, if you go go back one. So everything along Mass Ave, this was the last unbuilt, abandoned parking lot area along Mass between MIT and Harvard. Cambridge wanted everything along the street to be given back as retail to bring life to the city, which was great, but then how do you make a front entrance to this building? So that whole canopy is your entry into Novartis, into a public park. It's a 1.5-acre public park that during the day anyone can use, and then it's a compound of three buildings that I sort of designed the first building, which... And then the second building is Toshiko Mori's, and the third is a two-story structure that had to remain. It's where the ENIAC computer was invented. So you had two stories, four stories, and then we could go to eight stories. So I had to, again, very interested in keeping the scale Scale. of the street and the human scale of that street, taking and not overpowering this two-story historic building, and then still allowing, of course, Novartis to build... A research, and for me, it was an articulation between conferencing and meeting rooms down below. And then this is just the sneak peek of the inside. It's this idea that how do we get um, the goal? One, one of the major goals was how do you get the scientists out of their labs and out of their silos and talking to one another? God forbid. So the whole, so the whole, the whole, um, what do we call the lower boomerang? 
has all those meeting conference rooms. The whole place becomes a very, almost a campus-like socializing field. You can we'll go on and- talk about larger yeah. scale. Yeah, yeah. 11-minute yeah. line. Very interested in taking a little bit of Ohio and transplanting it to southern Sweden um, <laughs> because I'm from southeastern Ohio and there are these incredible effigy mounds um, of which one is literally called the Serpent Mound, and it has a snake about to eat an egg. And when European settlers first came to the New World and they saw these mounds and they went, well, certainly that Native American tribes here could not possibly have been this sophisticated. Europeans must have come from Europe, made these, and then gone back to Europe. So, so what I figured I'd do, and I got very interested in the nature of a line drawing, like this one to me looked a little prehistoric. Um, I wanted to take a little bit of Athens, Ohio and move it to southern Sweden. It's the part of the Wachmeister's estate. Everyone else has their artwork. Um, there's an incredible barn that Anne Hamilton took over. Yeah. Martin Purrier has this unbelievable thatch, almost Buddha-like shape hidden in a beech grove, but I just needed more space. So when I do these large outdoor works, I need a little bit of elbow room, go back, and so... I'm very obedient. This was, thank you, this was a cow pasture, and it was owned, it's one of the oldest operating um, dairy farms in all of Sweden, and so I'd asked Marika, um, can I, can I play in the field? And she said, well, I don't know. Um, we have to ask the, uh, what do you call it? The dairymen, if the cows would mind. And, um, well, it sort of brings back yeah. stories of your early childhood, your, your, your father and mother thinking that you knew when to feed the animals. Yeah, so you're, and, you're, and there I am. Like, there you are again. In a state-of-the-art, sustainable, organic dairy and the cows actually love to climb it and, and walk on it. Um, don't know why. So this is another piece, um, part of a series called The Wave Fields. There are three in this series. There'll be three in the earth drawings. And they're all based on, I came across this one photo of a repeating water wave. And this is the second called Flutter. It's very shallow waves. It's when water comes almost to shore and it causes ripples in the sand. This was the first in the series. It's um, 10,000 square feet. Scale as you could sit, go back. You go too fast. I'm, the, um, I'm just mindful. Okay. Um, you can sit in a wave and read a book and go to the last, the culmination of this series, because uh, this was all plain about scale. You can go pop forward. Um, Storm King Wavefield. And again, I think the reason I end up making so many of the works in the studio is because when you're out there in full scale, they're not letting me near the bulldozer operators. It's like they're going to, we're sculpting it, but I can't do it. My hands aren't doing it at that point. And um, so this was just the beginnings of it, and we built the whole piece out, having modeled it and modeled it. This is at the Storm King Art Center. And I realized once I built it, I had gotten the scale wrong for the site. The idea was I'd go from 10,000 square feet for the first wave field, 30,000, and this was 90. The 90,000 wasn't big enough to fit the site, and so we had to then increase each wave by about five feet. So it went from 12 feet to 18 feet, and in doing that, every single row had to grow. 
he was great. That man there. Th at this What's moment in time, I'm basically saying, I think we need to scale the project up, which meant every wave but the first had to get and so re what, did, what did he done. do? He smiled and said, sure. <laughs> Three months later, I, you know, and so this was, I was driving up to Storm King like almost every other day to help well, we had to, I, I felt we had to talk um, yeah. about the library in a library and mm -hmm. talk about your brother also. Yes, uh, my brother, Tan, is uh, Lin. My elder brother is a language poet. And, um, and I spoke yesterday to a poet who told me he's a very good poet. He's a very good poet. And he's much smarter than me. Um, really intellectual, too. And but thankfully he, for your father, he had a daughter. Exactly. So, you, no, no. so my mom, who's a poet and a professor, and my brother were like perfect. And my dad and I were off making clay things. Um, my brother probably was instrumental. We all talk about how our parents influenced us. My brother did. I mean, he would put out like easy poets like Merwin and and then came Ashbury, and then came Stevens, and I, I couldn't tell you what they meant, but I just fell in love with poetry in high school and always um, just was inspired. So, And Merwin is so extraordinary in terms of trees and nature. And yeah, just I was out there playing yeah. in the woods, and my brother was writing like crazy. And so this is called Reading a Garden, and the title of the piece is spelled backwards on a water fountain. So when you see the reflection in the water, it spells itself forward. And it's my brother's poem, and it's a child's verse. It's almost like Alice in Wonderland, because this space was between the old historic library and a new library, and the children's library was right at the base of the new library. So we created this three-part little poem game garden that you playfully walk through or on and um, it's just called reading a garden and and um, there would be times where I created the form and then my brother wrote the poem and then I would change the form because what you didn't want to do like with anything I'd done before with civil rights I came up with the form and then applied the words with this piece I wanted to start saying well what if the art what if the space changes to fit the language and so this, again, this is sort of my idea of how I start thinking of, like, the spiral a is a beginning because it was women at Yale. It's not a memorial. It's just merely um, kind of commemorates co-education at Yale. And on this water table is a spiral of numbers. It starts with zeros, ends with the year I put it in, which is, I think, I think got 93. And, of course, when there were no women at Yale at the beginning. So it's a bunch of zeros till you get to like 18, 1870, whatever, and there's the number 13. And that's like the first graduate school to admit women. It was the Yale School of Art, Street Hall. And the rumor was, though I've also been told that's not true, Mr. Street had two daughters. And he gave money to build Street Hall under one condition that it be co-ed from the start. And so, again, here's a timeline the last of, in a way, the timelines, and it's completely open-ended because you can have a beginning, you know, when Yale starts to admit women, but you don't have an end. The term that, I came across one book, and they gave women the name silent listeners 
because women were allowed to audit courses at the start, but they weren't allowed to enroll. And then when Yale officially admitted women into the undergraduate class, they did so under a very strict quota. So what we tried to do, and I had to use the Yale stati Statistics Department, and there's a footnote. I love it if I can put like an asterisk footnote on an artwork because the stats department said, well, we can give you an approximation, but it's an approximation because in the Yale School of Law, they officially admitted women, but they didn't want to admit that they admitted women. <laughs> so they left them as initials. So they don't know how many women, and they had to do an extrapolation on the initials to assume what percentage may or may not. So there's a little footnote on the back of the sculpture that kind of, because the stats department says you have to, you have to like explain I mean, that you this know, is looking, like a guess. Looking at this also, I was thinking of, of the recent passing of Zaha Hadid. Yeah. And just how, I mean, how much her, her, her death has made people speak about the poultry, the few architects that are women. It's amazing. The number of women that train in architecture, in my whole training, has been at least, you know, 40%, 50%, sometimes more at times. And then it's really hard. They don't end up becoming their own firm. I've seen women architects get relegated to the managerial roles versus the creative, and you don't know why. In closing, Maya, uh, a project that is very yes. close to you. This is, these. well, these are sculptures. This was at the parish. This is around the world times three, and it's the Arctic, the, the I always get a miss, latitude uh, intersecting New York, and then the equator. So this is the terrain above and below sea level. And then if you go on, I'm very interested in just, again, the mountain ranges. I'm really interested right now in the deepest crevices in the ocean, as well as there was a heading that came out three days ago about, you know, the an Antarctic and the Arctic, um, the Antarctic um, disappearing. This is, this is, go back one, this is the diminishment of the Arctic ice cap. So it's lost about 50% uh, of its mass. What isn't told is it's the amount of depth that has been lost as the ocean waters underneath are carving it out. So I think a lot of the comments are um, from the scientists is they had to be very conservative. That's just the nature and their role. It might be the concern is that this is going to happen much faster as the ice starts melting and, and a Swiss cheese effect starts happening. And if you go, I think if we pop to the next one, this is, I took one piece of, you know, Vermont marble. I feel like touching it. And yeah, always, you're allowed to touch this. And we, out of one piece, we carved out, so the uppermost layer, layers were what's left. So if you go into a detail of it. so. We, this was called the disappearing bodies of water, and like I took, chose the Aral Sea, Lake Chad, which are almost non-existent as waterways. So I'm very interested right now in diminishing aquifers and the poles. Um, I think I'm beginning to start to build towards um, the next show, which will probably, again, I always take two years. You know, um, this is, I, I hope to be able to 
to lure you back to the to the library because I'm going to probably be doing a big project with the the, the Danish Royal Library mm -hmm. on the Arctic Circle. It's, it's such incredible. a fascinating subject. And and politically, if you can believe it, how many countries are now battling because they think with all the ice disappearing, they can um, go ocean exploring for more oil yeah. or have a... I mean, we're, we're, we're insane so, so right in, now. In, I mean, in, we're so in that, in that yes. sense, art and advocacy come together yes. for you. With, yes, in the art. And maybe it's always been that way. I think I've always been a little bit on the political side. Um, I just try to be non-didactic, except with missing, I've sort of, I've become a little prescriptive. Hopefully when I'm done, I'll strip it back to something else, but part of it will remain extremely prescriptive, extremely didactic. I'm not gonna get out there with missing, telling you what is gone without telling you what we can do to help. Because I think it's our time, our kids are gonna suffer it. It's not gonna wait till our grandkids, it's now and we have to move. And so this, this is what one, just came one out. Week, one week ago to the day. Yeah, and I saw it, clipped it, and I'm Sent obsessed with, obsessed with, like right now, I'm gonna start working on a sculpture that deals with, they have all the data of, of the, the mountain range underneath the Antarctic. So one of my pieces is gonna be about an uh, Antarctic without ice. Not that there will, there will always be ice there, if, if and when the climate models are saying it's gonna, once it starts, it goes quite quickly. I think there, there was one ice shelf, the Weddell ice shelf in the Antarctic. At first, scientists thought when it went, it would take decades, and it calved within two months. And that was 15, 20 years ago, and uh, people filmed it, it was stunning. And so when the Antarctic goes, I think it's gonna increase sea level by, say, 20 feet. But the trouble is it's the Arctic going and Greenland that could really set us over. So this is happening in our now. And it's again, as Al Gore would put, when you put the lobster in to cold water and you turn the heat up slowly, you barely notice it. So again, we have a very weird inability to see something happening. Right in, in real time, when it's kind of not immediate fire to put out. It's a little bit of a slower situation. And that's the problem. And, and, and also with shifting baselines, we just don't realize how much has changed because we just accept what we, what, what we have in front of us. So yeah, I'm, I'm really, I mean, this is, it's this, it's ocean acidification, it's, it's the sixth extinction, it's all happening. And, um, but I'm, I'm ultimately, I mean, I'll say it, it's like the World Economic Forum said it would take 700 billion annually to curb climate change emissions. That's less than what we spend annually on cigarettes, or I put up another factoid. You combine what we spend on the weight loss industry and um, I can't remember, in meetings in the US, that's 700 meetings. billion meetings in people, the US. You mean people yeah. going to meetings? Going to meetings. Which I've always wondered how yeah. much it costs organizations. Or, or, I know. I mean, or, or, or get this, if you wanted to protect all of biodiversity, it would be like 75 billion a year, and that's what we spend on pet food. 
on that note, on that thank note. you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.